לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. I'm Rabbi Elliot Talmud of the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shimon in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me, as always, good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky on Shechetzin in New York City. Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter Day School of Long Island. It's great to see you all. We're starting off with uh, some very sad news. Of course, we are uh, extending our condolences to Rabbi Amy Kalmanovsky, our, our dear friend, colleague, uh, wife of Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, lost her, her father. Her father passed away. Jeremy, say a few words about him, I guess. I want to say, want to say uh, farewell and, and uh, the memory of David Kappel, David Van Edel, was uh, certainly a blessing to us. He was a wonderful father to three and grandfather to eight, and, uh, and it was a blessing in our lives, and he passed away this morning at 88 years old. Fortunately, he passed away peacefully. You know, the Talmud says... Uh, in a different context about, about you know, God forbid, a, a judicial execution, that to love your neighbor as yourself means to make the death as painless as possible. You should try to give somebody a dignified and painless death. And my father-in-law had a very painless death. He, he, he uh, did not have a long illness. He did not have that long drawn out period in which people decline and they fear their mortality. He went to sleep last night and didn't wake up. And uh, I wish everybody should have such a, a blessed a blessed passing. Yes, may his memory be a blessing. Well, we want to we want to pivot to the parsha Vayigash, which is filled with all sorts of emotional moments. Emotional moments, not only of um, coming together, but but all sorts of encounters. Um, and of course, it starts with this this remarkable, remarkable presentation before Joseph Judah, already having emerged as the the leader of the family um, is now speaking before Joseph. I want to take a moment to, to think about Vayigash Elav Yehuda, the words that start our parsha. Jeremy, tell us, uh, take us into these this moment and this scene and um, the dynamics here. So, so the word Nun Gimel Shin, or as it comes in the verb pattern, Vayigash, means draws near, physically draws near. And that's what gives this story uh, an enormous, like the, the literary art is quite amazing. And I want to, in a second, explore one nuance to that that's, that's not, not really the semantic shot. But on the semantic level, the alienation of the brothers who threw him in the pit, <laughs> who, sold, who, who, who decided not to throw him into slavery, but to, to, not to murder him, but send him into slavery, starting off this big agonizing novel of a journey. Um, is about brotherly alienation. And there's the great, amazing passage in last week's Parsha when they, the brothers come to Egypt and they first get in trouble uh, with this man whom they don't know, who they don't recognize, who is the boss of Egypt, and he's being cruel to them. And they turn and say to each other in Hebrew, not really realizing that Joseph knows, this is because 
we heard our brother begging and pleading to us for rescue and we ignored him. And Joseph just, he, he melts. He runs out of the room and cries privately at that point. Uh, that's all about alienation. That's all about being so separate and not connected to each other. Now, this is the moment of reconnection. And so the Torah doesn't say, and Judah yelled or Judah implored. It says Judah drew near, and it creates this physical story, which is, to me, very powerful. But there's another part of this, which is manifest in the Haftarah, and the metaphor that the, that the uh, Ezekiel tells of biblical history. Yosef and his descendants, Ephraim, are going to be the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah and his descendants are going to be the southern kingdom of Yehuda. And the history of biblical Israel is, is about their, you know, poor relationship and their struggles. And right in the middle between Yehuda in the south and Ephraim in the north is Binyamin. Binyamin is the area right in Jerusalem and to the north, uh, even contemporary Ramallah or Beit El or something. And the Haftarah for today, um, Ezekiel says that you'll take two blocks of wood or perhaps two sticks, and on one of them you'll write the, the, the wood or the branch of Yosef, and one of them you'll write the wood or the branch of Judah, and you'll bring them together in this kind of um, sympathetic magic way or something like that. Physically, I want to take these two branches, which have been separated, I want to bring them together, and it matches Vayigashe Lav Yehuda. I have to say that when I read the beginning of this Parsha, that Judah draws near to Joseph as they are arguing about the fate of Benjamin in the middle between them, I think that the Torah has created this, is told this story with exactly this in mind, that the physical nearness of Am Yisrael in the persons of Joseph, Benjamin, and Judah is, is really being sketched out. That's beautiful, beautiful. Barry, you have any reaction to that? Because I have a, a, a short reaction to it, but I want to hold it. It's always interesting listening to Jeremy talk in, in the way that he's talked about it, with the emphasis on the language. So... Just before, when Jeremy was talking, he mentioned that Joseph and the brothers do not apparently have a language in common. The brothers are talking Hebrew, of course. They imagine that Joseph doesn't understand them because he speaks Egyptian. But one of the things that your exposition suggests, Jeremy, is that when Judah approaches Joseph, he approaches him in the language as well. That, in other words, it's finally dawning on him as he draws near to Joseph, that he is reaching his language as well. And it adds a nice tenor to the discussion because language sometimes tears us apart, but sometimes it also draws us near. And when we realize that we speak the same language as someone else, we think of that in terms of close friends or close brothers. So it's a very effective moment of, of reaching. Fascinating. Does, I just want to say that that, that in the um, the midrash, one of the, one, of the, one of the midrashim uh, on on Vayigash actually uh, takes a radically different approach to to what you said, Jeremy, and to what you amplified, Barry, which is that there's the possibility of aggression here. There's a possibility of of approaching as conflict, and so the machloket is is Yehuda coming to Joseph with the intention of conflict, that is to say a zero sum game, there's gonna be a winner and a loser here, or is there uh, the attempt to come together here uh, with deliberation, with negotiation, reconciliation? And of course the rabbis chime in also and say, is, is really 
davening. He's going to he's going to daven here, which I'm not sure exactly. You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic towards. There's there's obviously this this moment which is so so intense and compressed with emotion is going to contain so many different valences. It's not just one, right? Jeremy, you were going to react. No, I, I, I think it's, of course, it's so many different valences. As the Joseph, how many times have we all had this conversation? How are they really reconciling? Is it beautiful? Are they angry? Has Joseph forgiven them? Has he not forgiven them? Is he yanking them around some more? Uh, we talked last time about what an ambivalent character Joseph is. And I certainly think that's true. Um, but man, you know, we these this whole this whole series of partial, we the three of us have had fun talking about and we we joke around like a jeopardy question, you know, searing emotional moments for 200. Joseph can't hold back anymore. Yeah. And and then the Torah does this fabulous cinematic moment. The Torah says, everybody out. And then we're on the other side too, and it says, and all of Egypt could hear his sobs as he revealed himself. Like the cameras on the outside of the room. And we're looking, we're just hearing through the window. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's worth thinking about these themes of reconciliation as they played themselves out during, uh, throughout the Sefer Breshit. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking of Esau and Yaakov, and they meet after 20 years, and Esau apparently kisses Jacob and the rabbis say not so fast. So in the written Torah that we have, we have the dots over the letters of Vayanasheku because Esau really wanted to bite Jacob and Jacob's neck conveniently turned into a stone so that Esau maybe only chipped his teeth and was not able to get a good bite. <laughs> but then when we think back, there is no reconciliation between Isaac and Jacob. You know, Isaac and Jacob leave, and, you know, perhaps we say Isaac says, sends Jacob away to find a, to find a, a wife um, because Esau has failed at this. But there are a lot of unspoken moments of breakage, of no reconciliation. So it is hard to figure out what, what, what the truth is here. And I suspect, you know, and we're the third wheel, as it were, the, as the audience. We're not Joseph, who is the, the original victim. We're not the brothers, the original victimizers. We're on the outside looking at the scene unfold before us. And as good Jews, we watch it unfold every year. Yeah, and we also want a, 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 a happy ending to the story. And we're, and we're not going to get a happy ending to the story. Well, well do we that. want a happy ending or a truthful ending? I think, I think. You know the storyteller in us and the and the listener in us wants resolution. So we're getting resolution by by the fact that they're meeting. Veloya choli tapek means you know the audience can't handle it anymore. We can't mm -hmm. handle it anymore too. You you that's correct. But then he says, "Who could possibly handle it?" Yeah. So so in the, in the process of reconciliation, he says, "Yeah, I'm the one that you sold." Right. In other words, he, he's still he's still leaving it open for them. For resolution, there's 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 a tremendous amount that is not resolved. I can reveal my identity to you, but you know what? We're going to have to deal with the fact that you did sell me, and and I'm willing to suspend that right now. But we'll see. We know that, of course, that 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 happens well, next week. But as we follow this out, Joseph seems willing to forget it or to put it aside, 
And the brothers keep coming back to it because they seem to recognize that they can never be quite punished enough to reach reconciliation. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, that, the, isn't that the description of, of you know, um, guilt in human relationships, right? Uh, like victims have the power. I read a book a number of years ago by this fellow named Lazar. Uh, he's a psychiatry professor at UMass Amherst. Not the butcher. Not, not, not Laser Wolf the Butcher, or Lazar's on Queens Boulevard, another, another good thing. But um, Aaron Lazar is his name, and he, he said that the whole, the book is called uh, On Apology or maybe On Forgiveness. And I, you know, read it one year in, in the advance of, uh, of the Amim Naraim, and he said the whole thing is about shifting the power. When you apologize, the person who had unjust power, and I used it to victimize you, um, is uh, the, the person who the one person had unjust power and use it to victimize then the other person um uh demands an apology or the, the the victimizer demands the apology gives the power back to the wronged one and the demand dimensions i think of of who has power and who is powerless when you really feel that you have not sufficiently restored the power to the person you victimize you, you're never going to forgive yourself and the brother's can't quite. You know, you said about the the true 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 ending or happy ending. Well, hopefully we can have both. But and and especially in Judaism writ large, we can have both. But this is only the end of Sefer Breshit, or we're heading only to the end of Sefer Breshit. We, the recipients of the Torah, know that it's not about to go very well. It's about to go badly. And so this story about reconciliation, which which may have elements, I hope, I think, I think it does, and I hope it does have elements of warmth and reconciliation and togetherness is told under the shadow of Egyptian slavery, which is about to begin. Well, okay. So, so let's take that forward. And of course we have another moment of reconciliation. I'm not sure we're going to get really into deeply where Jacob, you know, Joseph, the brothers tell Jacob and by a fugly bow, his heart stops and, and Jacob sees Joseph again. And that, that, can you just take me into that scene and that, that scene where Jacob and Joseph see each other is, you know, we're also waiting for that scene. But what is what does Jacob say at that moment? I'm there you go. Well, he's he's elated, I guess, as well as one can be. But how elated can you actually be when you've been in mourning for 17 years, or however it's longer than that? I guess it's over 20 years, and you find out that the object of your mourning is now alive. And there have been intimations throughout that perhaps Jacob knew that there is more to the story than his sons told him. But even so, it's a perplexing story. I always like to think about that scene with the Pharaoh, which I think is related, where he describes a very different reaction. So when he meets Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, how old are you? I guess it's a better question than how are you? Um, and Jacob says in the early version of the Catskull joke, my life has been bad and I haven't lived as long as my ancestors. And what we often forget is Joseph is in front of him, yeah. right? He's just yeah. been reunited with Joseph and he's saying, and all he can think about is I've had a bad life and I'm not going to live as long as my father or my grandfather. Right. And meanwhile, the source of the blessing that he's dreamed about is right in front of him and he cannot even acknowledge it. Last last year on this parsha, last last year on this parsha, by my bad mitzvah girl dealt with this scene. <laughs> she's she tried to give she did a great job. She tried to give different 
articulations of that question of how old are you? Her favorite one was, yeeks, how old are you? Man, you look awful. <laughs> well, that fits, I think, Rashi's comment, where Jacob looks a lot older than he is, which prompts Pharaoh's question. And then his answer is, I'm not as old as I look. <laughs> so so I, I've sometimes said that Jacob is a depressive. You know, Amuta Apam, when he sees Joseph, you know, now I can die. And exactly as you said here, you know, when he speaks to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130, few and bad have they been. I haven't reached the, the age of my, of my ancestors. But can we just talk for a second about Pharaoh here? And, and what do you think is transpiring between Pharaoh and Joseph, Pharaoh and Jacob? It says earlier when, when the, you know, he heard of this, He's, he's really happy. Do you have a, a sense of Pharaoh uh, as um, being happy? Or, not, I, I don't want to say cynical about this, but... It, he's quizzical. It's Maxwell's hammer. <laughs> he's quizzical because this is the great scene. Joseph is the new immigrant who has made it good. And he has dazzled everyone in the host country. And now he brings his father from the old country to meet his boss. And Pharaoh takes a look at him and he doesn't see Joseph. He sees this broken man in front of him and has to wonder what's the connection between him and his faithful servant, his second in command. I, I, it's absolutely fascinating. It's a fascinating scene because, you know, imagine you're Joseph here in this moment. Do you, do you feel you know, proud? Do you feel embarrassed? I mean, most of us... I think you feel both. No, I think he feels both. He wants to recognize his father. I think he wants his father to meet Pharaoh. But he's also <laughs> troubled by it. And again, here we have to think about the language. You have to assume that Joseph has to interpret for, for them, yeah. right? Because they don't apparently have the common language. Yeah, and the embarrassment Pharaoh is a, is, a, is a parental figure to Joseph also. He I, is, but so, you know, the Greeks refer to the non-Greeks as barbarians because they thought their language sounded like babbling. And one can only imagine that every time Jacob says something, Joseph is translating into Egyptian, wondering if Pharaoh sees this as some childlike language that doesn't really make any sense and that maybe Joseph is dressing it up for him. Absolutely. How, how, you imagine the, you know, the, the, old, the old joke of, uh, you know, dress British and think Yiddish, right? So, <laughs> so you, you can imagine. Well, he can't know, walk Yosef, like an Egyptian yet. <laughs> you can imagine Yosef as, as the dress British, think Yiddish guy, and, and he's, he's changed his name from, uh, you know, Chaim Fishgrund to uh, to Howard Phillips, and and he's got to introduce his dad, who only speaks Yiddish. And um, so, you know, I, I read an amazing short piece. But if our if our listeners probably have encountered the Torah.com, an amazing website with where academic scholars will will write short pieces that'll be illuminating. And Yisrael Kanol from the Hebrew University has a short piece. Um, it's actually listed under last week's parsha. That's totally mind blowing. Um, 
and that there is a there is a um, a West Semitic guy. This is apparently a real historical matter. A West Semitic guy who rose to power in Egypt, who helped them during a famine, and his name appears to be written in hieroglyphics as whatever it is. But Canol, um plays with it a little bit and arrives that the name was Beya, and the Ya part is a Yud Hey theophoric name. It's like. Yeshayahu or Yermiyahu or Yehosef. And that character in in you know in in a, in a historical record that is outside of not, not that Beya is Yosef, but that there's a parallel story being told. And that's a character outside of Am Yisrael's remembrance. It's it's Egyptian text. And that guy was very powerful and led Egypt through a difficult period until uh, rival courtiers, until he got a little proud and rival courtiers killed him. And he had he had a few years in power, and then he got killed in palace intrigue, and um, that is true of lots of Jews throughout the history. The son of Shmuel Hanagid in in the in the late tenth century in um, in in Islamic Spain happened exactly to him, and so I think that that moment of the the word that I would use about Pharaoh is suspicious. Uh, we talked about the way that the future Pharaoh. Is going to before the call started. We talked about the future Pharaoh is going to be a little wily and say we well, have to deal smartly with these Jews. Uh, there are too dang many of them, and I think that that Pharaoh looks at this and says, "All right, where where is this going? Um, okay, you can take your father back to be buried, but I'm going to send troops with you to make sure you come back." Um, and there's totally a shrewdness to him. I mean, as 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 kindly and beneficent as he seems here. He, he is really concerned about Egypt. He's, he's shrewd. He's concerned about power, like any, any you know, monarch or despot. And despot, yeah. right. And, and, you know, as long as Joseph is happy, he can be happy. And having the family around Joseph really makes, uh, makes the, the package complete. And, and, and here I think we could segue into, into a whole discussion, which I, I'd like to, which is, you know, the, the Joseph is a model of the diaspora Jew. Joseph is a model of the Jew who makes it well. And Joseph, as this highly, highly, prodigiously talented individual who then has the tools of power. And by the end of the Parsha, we have this, this idea, this, the picture that Joseph is, is I don't want to say tyrannical, but, but he, he wields power. Uh, I want you to reflect on that and, and uh, start with Barry. Well, the way you describe it, he reminds me of Salazzo. He's good with a knife. Jacob, uh, Joseph really knows how to advance Pharaoh's agenda. And it happens so quickly, right? We have something that happens over several years. He described as happening in a few verses that we don't even realize what's happened. So we begin with seven years of plenty when everyone is happy to bring their excess crops to the storehouses and then very quickly we have a famine the people are slaved and they lose all their land and all that remains is pharaoh at the head of the country and joseph is second in command the jew or the hebrew i guess we would say and the priests and within a space of a few years pharaoh's control over egypt has become irrevocable and undeniable and impossible to move. Yeah. He's gotten everything that he wanted 
and he has someone you can blame it on too. Well, yeah. Elliot, you were saying before that you were you were saying before Elliot that that Joseph um, has some responsibility for what happens next. There, there is no question in my mind that Joseph is it becomes indispensable to Pharaoh, and also, as you put it earlier, also he he is he he will take the blame for this because he is not a, of kin to the to the Egyptians, and that 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 kind of alludes to. Uh, some other rules in in the book of Vayikra where you don't right. know so, your brother. What he could, what we could say, jumping ahead a couple weeks, where they also have some good lines. I've been told is that when it says that Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, is that he what he really means is he knew Joseph wasn't one of them, yeah. and his people are not Egyptians, and therefore we can do with them whatever we want. So, so Joseph Joseph becomes indispensable to Pharaoh. But I want to put this proposition out that here we see that Joseph really is the first slave. Joseph is not free. Joseph now, uh, and, and, and there is a very subtle, I guess, or possibly overt uh, reach here for power over the family. The family is now subordinate and even subservient to, to Joseph. I'm not sure they really like that. And, and um what you have here is is again we're, we are setting the stage up for for you know the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. Uh, it goes back to our another theme, which is does this end on a happy note or on a real note? So the two things I would say is that again we have the tension between the personal and the national. That as we get to the end of Breshid and the beginning of Sefer Shemot, the there's going to be a, a change in focus focus on individuals as part of a family with everything that that implies. And then at the beginning of Shemot, all of a sudden we're going to have a full-blown nation, which we're going to learn is numbers over 2 million people from 70 men who went into Egypt. And so that's one part of it. The other part of it is, you know, we're evaluating Joseph in two ways. I think it's worth speculating for a moment. How would Joseph see himself at the end of his life? I think he would see himself as a success that a lot of the negative things that he represents perhaps and that he engenders are going to become manifest after he's dead. And they're not properly part of his life from his perspective. As outsiders, as descendants, we judge him in light of what ensues. But he doesn't have that ability. So I, I think that we have to see Joseph you know, on his terms as a success. He did what everything that he could do to advance his family. He saved them from the famine. I'm not he sure I agree with you. I'm not I, sure I also, agree with you, but go to Jeremy, go. I'm, I'm also not sure that I agree because, because so much of it turns as, as the book of Breshit ends, and this is next week, I'm jumping ahead, uh, the commitment of Yaakov and Yosef to be buried in yeah. the homeland. Um, for Yosef to say, I'm making you swear this oath that one day you're gonna get out of here and we and you're going to take my bones. Um, he's got to feel that that he, not only does Pharaoh not feel that Joseph really belongs here, Joseph doesn't feel he really belongs here, and the people don't feel that way. And I, I would say that the Joseph's accumulation, you know, I, I like that idea that Joseph is the first slave, not because he's got a miserable existence, but because he creates the power that will then exploit him. Right, he creates this hugely despotic Pharaoh state, in which Pharaoh owns all of Egypt, and you know that that has a tendency 
to create, you know, so much power has a tendency to create abuses of power. So I think that the Torah is um, at least partly, and maybe, maybe between the lines or maybe not so subtly saying Joseph in his enormous financial success contributes to a despotic pharaonic rule that will exploit these people. And he knows he can't, he can't leave. He knows he doesn't belong to be buried there, but he doesn't successfully leave either. It's like the fact that while as vizier of Egypt, it's 11 days from Egypt up the coast to Eretz Yisrael, he didn't, he didn't send an email. He didn't text. He didn't tweet. Yeah. He could have gotten Yaakov at any point. He chose not to. He chose, it's, it's for, I mean, we American Jews get this exactly. We could live in the promised land tomorrow. Yeah. And we have made a choice to feel at home and not a thousand, like nine, 900% at home, but maybe not a thousand percent at home here, here in, in, in the Gola. So, so it's interesting, Jeremy, because the way you describe it, Joseph wants to be buried in Canaan because he doesn't, he's not Egyptian. He doesn't belong in Egypt. But I think to me, the answer is much simpler. He wants to be with his father. And it's that pull of Yaakov rather than the push from Egypt that leads him to make that decision. So I'm going to take another negative point to this, which is I think I think he he feels deeply responsible for having caused this, and and he sees that the pe- the population, the public image of Joseph and and the family, uh, public opinion is going to turn against him. And it would it you know were it not for the antagonistic public opinion of of the Egyptian populace against Israel, the pharaohs program of enslavement would not have been successful. And we, we, we know this through our recent history. You know, you, you, don't, you don't commit acts of genocide without the willing accomplices of the, of, of the population. So, so it, it is complicated. It is, you know, excruciating. And, and he sees the, he, that he is partly responsible for this. The second thing is, I think the Torah has a, a, a strong agenda in favor of the the shepherd civilization over the city civilization. And that what Joseph has done, Joseph has enabled the people to now live off of him. And the the, the Torah has a strong agenda against those who wield power because those who wield power form cities and and become themselves objects of veneration. And, and, And I think that tension really exists here between the brothers. And just one one little you know, scene of that is when Joseph says to, to the brothers, when Pharaoh asks you what, to, what you do, tell him, tell him you're men of the herd. Don't tell him you're shepherds. Shepherds are abhorrent. And what do the brothers say? They say, we're shepherds. We're shepherds. In other words, Joseph, you want to roll it, run our lives? You want to tell us whether we are shepherds? And you better deal with that. Shepherds are uh, emblems of freedom. They, we, we are free. And we're not under, we don't take anybody's guff. We, we are answerable to a higher authority. <laughs> we want to. Well, it's, hard to it's, it's hard to argue with that. But I, I want to offer the following comment. So we come back then to the scene of Jacob and Joseph being reunited. And the question that we haven't asked is who is responsible for Joseph's enslavement in Egypt? You suggested in a certain way that on one hand, 
Jacob is responsible. He favored Joseph. He gave him the Ketone Pasim, the coat of many colors, and he set in motion this terrible ordeal, which is part of our salvation history. On the other hand, we could say, you know, Joseph, you know, he's a spoiled brat. He got what was coming to him. You know, the expression in Hebrew, Magialo, was made for him. <laughs> he did not get anything that he did not deserve. Now they meet after 20-odd years, and what do they say to each other? Does Joseph say to his father, this was terrible, but I'm partially at fault? And does Jacob say, I don't know how I can ever gain your trust again, but I set this in motion? Where, where are we left? Where is the reconciliation between them? Right? We have, on one hand, each of them happy in their own sphere, but are they happy together? I think that's one of the great, the great lingering questions. We, we, Good, because I think the answer to it is Joseph wanting to be buried with his father. Okay. I give you that. I give you that. Yes. Joseph, there is no reconciliation in this life for both of them. They, they, as much as they try and as much as the brothers try, things are, there are things that are unresolved. And, and maybe that's just the, the truth, the, you know, not the happy ending, but the true ending, which is... Well, what a great place to end. Yeah, I know. What, what, you, you want things to, be, to work out, but there's always going to be some kind of residue. Well, we, we, we want things to work out in the story, but we know that there's one more partial left in Sefer Breshit, and we can't get there now, but we will get there next week. Wait a second. What's today? Today's the 24th. Hey, that means that next partial talk, I was, gonna, I was about to say this is the last partial talk of 2020, but it's not next because New Year's Eve is the next Thursday, so we'll we'll get we'll get one more Parsha talk in in this accursed year. We will share this on New Year's Day next next week. So till then, yeah. we want to thank you so much for joining us. Send us your questions, comments, Parsha talk at gmail.com and have a wonderful Shabbat on behalf of Gary Chesser or Gary Chesser and Jared Kalmanovsky.